0: My name is Erin Kenny. I'm a registered dietitian, certified personal trainer, holistic cannabis practitioner with a master's degree in nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast Nutrition Rewired where I share cutting edge practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. Hey, Kim, it's so great to finally chat with you.
1: I know we have definitely been trying to get connected for quite a while now. So I am very excited to speak with you as well, Erin.
0: Yes, well, it was worth the wait, because I have been (laughs) following you on social media and LinkedIn for a long time now and have always been very impressed by the content that you bring to individuals and your
1: expertise, which is
0: diabetes and blood sugar balance.
1: Yes, it's it's such a huge topic to be honest with you, and I feel like during the time that I started it all, not enough attention was being given to that community. So you know now it's like everyone is speaking about uh, blood sugar health. So I'm I'm excited to delve into my passion project.
0: Yeah. And just curious, what led you into this field of work? Was it really just the underserved population? Or was there any sort of like personal or or family experience that you've had with diabetes?
1: So that is a very good question. It's quite multifaceted. Um, So where do I begin? So let's begin with my personal family history. So I have, I had, pardon me, an uncle who was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And unfortunately, he ended up passing away due to complications when he was young. He was about mid to late 50s. And I saw him go through the stage of, well, I can only eat old wicker furniture. I can only eat cardboard and sadness. And I can't enjoy the foods that I love. And just seeing how that impacted my family and he was actually the youngest out of nine siblings. That really left an impression on me that diabetes is something that not only impacts you, it impacts those you love, and you don't have to basically be miserable. Food should be something that you can enjoy if you do have that diagnosis. So that was one thing. The other thing is after I became a dietitian. so with my uncle, that happened when I was a teenager, When I became a dietitian, I moved into a small town in the middle of Florida, right in between cow pastures and orange groves. And a physician challenged me and he said, Kim, we have a large population of individuals that have diabetes here. And there is really only two diabetes educators and they are retiring. So we need more people. And I said, well, okay, I'm game you know, what do I need to do? Um, So I decided to study and learn about it so I could help those underserved populations in the food apartheid where I live.
0: Incredible. So I love that that two-part story. And I think it's always the case with anybody, right? There's not always just like one aha moment. It's Mm. kind of like a buildup maybe. And then it's the universe kind of places it in your lap and you're like, well, (laughs) this seems fitting. Right,
1: right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So I'd love to give kind of just like an overview. um, Because I, I, I mentioned how you mentioned that, you know, diabetes was something or blood sugar and diabetes was something that not a lot of people were talking about. And I feel like it's almost become even kind of trendy on social media. Um, And I don't feel like a lot of people even understand the basics. I feel like some people are jumping towards this, you know, blood sugar balance topic, but they don't really even know what insulin is or what glucose is or how the body utilizes and responds to these different proteins. So I'd love to hear from you kind of what are they?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, that definitely is a topic that I'm seeing more and more. I don't, I don't want to say that they're health gurus or self-proclaimed nutritionists, but a lot of people are jumping on the bandwagon. So let me just talk about diabetes as a whole. So diabetes is a condition in general where your body does not use the glucose for energy. And as a result, when you prick your finger, You can end up with high blood sugar levels. So, your body's use of glucose is compromised. So, glucose, by definition, it it comes from a Greek and a French word, and it simply means sweet. And it is a major source of energy for the cells of your body. So, in order for the cells of the body to use glucose, you kind of need a key to unlock the cell, to open up the cell, to allow glucose to enter the cell and to be used for energy. And that key is called uh, insulin. So insulin is a hormone that our pancreas, and everyone has a pancreas, so our pancreas does produce that hormone, and without insulin, we cannot survive. Insulin is important because it helps to regulate your blood glucose or your blood sugar, as I like to call it, And it, yeah, that's basically what it is in a large overview. So there's many different types of diabetes, but the two most popular ones that I think a lot of people know is type 1 diabetes as well as type 2 diabetes, even though research is showing that there's like a large overlap. So let's start off with type 1 diabetes. About 10% of the United States population has type 1 diabetes. And type 1 diabetes is considered to be an autoimmune condition where the body all of a sudden starts attacking specifically the beta cells of the pancreas that produce insulin. So in type 1 diabetes, individuals do not make enough insulin or they do not make any at all. Um, Type 1 diabetes was once thought to be juvenile diabetes, so they thought that children and teenagers develop this type of diabetes. But there was a case recently from, who was it? It was actually a podiatrist friend of mine that told me one of her clients at 60 recently got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Hmm. So it is no longer, it's so interesting, right? That's fascinating. It is no longer... Uh, considered to be juvenile or like you get it as a child or a teenager. It can actually occur any time during the lifespan, again, because of those genes and their overlapping. The second type of diabetes, which about 90% of the population has, which is quite popular, is type 2 diabetes. And that's the type of diabetes that my uncle had. Type 2 diabetes used to be called adult onset diabetes, but now Children, as young as six, are developing this type of diabetes. I know my nieces, um, they were, this was before the pandemic, so they were maybe like six and nine at the time. They had an increased risk due to their sedentary lifestyle for type 2 diabetes. And then my sister-in-law just dropped them over here, and yeah, we got to work. Um, But with type 2 diabetes, this is caused by both. It's, It's complex but the risk is increased by both modifiable as well as non-modifiable risk factors. So if you have a family history, you can your risk is increased for type 2 diabetes depending on what race you are. If you're older than 45 years of age, if you are sedentary, um, if you carry weight within a certain area, then that increases your risk for type 2 diabetes. But how I like to think of type 2 diabetes, and this is what I explain to all my clients, is you know, we have that organ, we it's the pancreas, and imagine that pancreas over time just gets tired. It can be tired due to a variety of different factors. And when it gets tired, it's not going to produce the amount of insulin, or it's simply not going to do its job. So there's different lifestyle factors and things such as medications that we can employ to kind of coach it and wake it up and be a cheerleader and, you know, boost its activity a bit more. So I know that was a very long winded way of saying type one, type two, glucose, insulin, but that is what it is in a nutshell. Oh, and that's,
0: a, that was a great overview. And I I love that you are kind of sharing the, um, the layman's terms because, I I even like personally, like if you get too sciencey, for example, I'm kind of, I'm lost, right? So there's, and there's a lot of new, you mentioned, there's a lot of nuances too, to the the spectrum of diabetes. And I think that's also really important to understand with any diagnosis, you know, it's not always specifically cut and clear and there can be some variability in there.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's not always black and white. You know, I've had so many people come to me telling me they had a diagnosis of type two Mm -hmm. and then like for some reason their numbers aren't budging even though they're taking the meds they're exercising they're reducing their stress they're eating good and I'm like can you go back to your doctor ask for these tests and they turn out to be type one and they're Mm. in their 30s and 40s wow like there's no way and I'm like you know things are changing where science is evolving it's finding out more and more about genes being turned on epigenetics basically Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. yes absolutely now when you talk about um, values I think that's an area that a lot of people also maybe don't understand like what labs they should be getting done and and how do you diagnose diabetes
1: Mm -hmm. that is a very great question so let me start off by saying diabetes can only be diagnosed by a doctor or your nurse practitioner or your PA. I, it, I think it depends on the license of like the state, but usually I say, get your doctor. basically your not lab. this, not, not this podcast. Right. Right. Not this podcast, <laughs> not dietitians. We don't, that's not our scope of practice. Um, but doctors diagnose diabetes. Um, So one of the key cornerstone um, methods that are used, or tests rather, that are used to diagnose diabetes is the A1C. Um, So the A1C, you'll go, your doctor may tell you to fast overnight, fast for a certain period of time, and they will draw your lab values. And one of them is the hemoglobin A1C. So the A1C gives an indication of how high or how low or just in general, how much sugar your red blood cells were holding on to for the last uh, three months. So if the A1C is um, below 5.7, then that's considered to be normal. If your A1C is between 5.7 to 6.4, that's considered to be pre-diabetic. So pre-diabetes is, you know, your blood sugar is high, but it's not high enough to be diagnosed as having diabetes. And the good thing with pre-diabetes is the CDC states that it can be reversed. And if your number is 6.5 or above, then that is considered to be di- to have diabetes So something that I always like to tell my clients to do, like, even if your A1C is good, still monitor the trends. Um, And the reason why I say that, there was someone that I knew that had a really interesting experience. Her A1C was just trending up slowly. I mean, it was normal, but it just kept going up little by little by little until it entered into the pre-diabetes stage. And the doctor was like, do you know that you have pre-diabetes? And she was... Livid. She was an athlete. She ate good, prioritized fiber. And she was like, How in the world? Like, why didn't you tell me? So, definitely, you know, doctors are there to diagnose, but it really falls on us to, you know, know what our bodies are doing. So, the A1C is really the most inexpensive and most widely used lab test. Another thing that can be used on a daily basis is the finger prick. So the finger prick is not used to diagnose Um, with gestational diabetes, it may be a little different, Um, but with the finger prick, it really gives you an indication of, you know, if you eat X, Y, Z food, how are those foods reacting in your body? So typically doctors want a fasting blood sugar of a hundred or below, if you don't have diabetes. If you do have diabetes, then they may say to you they want your number at 120. But again, it all depends on the doctor. I've had doctors tell people they want their number to be no higher than 110 Mm -hmm. because everything has to be individualized. Uh, Two hours after the meal, um, I've heard some doctors tell people that have diabetes, I want your number to be 165 or lower. And then I've had doctors tell people, I want your number to be 140 or lower. A tighter control, it may be because of their age, it may be because of their risk factors, Um, but it really depends on what your specific doctor wants your numbers to be. So I always encourage people, when you go to your doctor, play an active role, ask about your A1C, ask about what they want your blood sugar numbers to be, because everything is individualized and depending how aggressive your doctor may be related to your overall care they may want your numbers within a certain range and may want someone else's numbers within a looser or tighter range.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that. And I I think hemoglobin A1C is one of my favorite lab values because I think it's so cool that we have like a three-month performance review of our blood sugar balance. Yeah, I think that's the coolest thing with yeah, the body. Yeah, that's so neat. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, are there any things that, because I, I have a lot of clients that when they go and get their blood glucose done, not the hemoglobin A1C, but the blood glucose, and it's a little bit high, they start to panic, right? And they're like, Oh, my gosh, my blood sugar is high, I'm eating too many carbs. What would you say to a client like that?
1: Yeah, so that is a very good, um, a good question. So there's many factors that can alter that hemoglobin A1C. For instance, um, sickle cell anemia, can alter your hemoglobin A1c. It can actually cause your A1c to be lower than it actually is because the cells are sickle. They have a hard time holding on to sugar. There's also race that comes into play. I remember I was seeing something. I don't remember if it was from the American Diabetes Association. So don't quote me on that. But it was saying different races, (laughs) different races, uh, specifically African-Americans tend to have a higher A one C, even if they don't have diabetes. Um, so I definitely think race plays a large part, and I don't think science is there yet to explain how A one C and how th- how their race impacts their A one C. But just to go back to your question, um, you know, I know some clients may may obsess that you know their A one C is higher than it was, and that they're eating too many carbs, you know, it's not only, it's not always about the diet. You know, I I feel that carbs get such a bad reputation, like, what in the world? Um, There's other things that can influence your A1C. There's stress that can influence it. There's lack of sleep that can influence it. Um, Ladies, menstrual cycle can influence, like, all of it. So a lot of the times I I think food gets blamed a lot, but we need to take like a more of a holistic view and realize it may not be the food. It may be other things that are going on. What medications are you on that can cause your blood sugar levels to spike? Um, There's a whole conglomerate of things that, that can occur.
0: And I think that's actually a really empowering point to kind of dive a little bit more into, because when we just look at food as the only thing that impacts our blood sugar, I think it can maybe even create some negative relationship with food. And Mm -hmm. it's very similar in my niche of gut health, right? When we assume that food is the only thing that can influence our digestion, it creates a very narrowed view of how we can really heal.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And you know, I love that. I love the fact that you you put healing there as well because a lot of people don't realize like type two diabetes. And I know you're the expert on this. It's inflammation. Mm-hmm. There's it's some inflammatory responses that are there. So what is the cause? Like I always like to tell people, get to your root cause. What caused your diabetes? Like when I was in the hospital, there was a popular drug which I'm going to not mention, but it's a steroid. And there's so many people that got diabetes because they had to be on this specific drug. Um, what so really just going from the cause to the effect instead of just blindly throwing um, carbohydrates under the bus is is really the way to go.
0: Sure, absolutely, that's great. Yeah, you mentioned that with your uncle about how he kind of saw this um, black and white scenario where he could really have have no foods that brought him joy, it was living off of Mm -hmm. these choices that were unenjoyable. And I think, you know, what's really empowering about the work that you do is that you help people understand that you don't have to live and eat in a way that is sad and unflavorful and, you know, completely void of Mm -hmm. carbs. It's about, you know, creating that balance.
1: Exactly. I love love the point that you brought out with like flavor, because, you know, Mm -hmm. I just have some people, that, hey, Kim, you know, I made um, skinless, boneless chicken. And like, they upload the picture in the portal and I'm looking and I'm like, where's the flavor? Well, I didn't add any salt, no pepper. You could have added some smoked paprika. You could have, you know, went jazzy and maybe, you know, added all these other different seasonings that are important for gut health, going back to the gut health. Yes. And I'm like, (laughs) You can add seasoning to your food if you if you have a diabetes or pre diabetes diagnosis. It's okay; it's not yeah. going to impact your blood sugar.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, I love that, and and we can kind of all rope in a little bit the the gut microbiome research when it comes to blood sugar. And yes. a lot of what I talk about on this podcast in general is the influence that the microbiome can have on every aspect of our health. You mentioned inflammation, the gut can control inflammation in the body, it can control our immune system, right? So you mentioned that type one diabetes is an autoimmune condition, it can impact the nutrient absorption, right? So there are certain nutrients that we know vitamins and minerals that are essential to balancing blood sugar. And the research is really, you know, you had mentioned, you know, you're kind of diving into it and and really enjoying the the different um, learning aspects of it. But it even on my end, there is still a lot to be questioned of, you know, how does the microbiome influence blood sugar balance? And there's a lot of different speculations based on the research of you know, there's the chicken or the egg type of situation, you know, did people with type one or type two diabetes have this, you know, gut microbiome composition before they got it. And that's why they got it. Or did Mm -hmm. they participate in unhealthy lifestyle Mm -hmm. factors or have a lot of inflammation going on in the body, which Mm. resulted in an imbalance Mm -hmm. of the good and less favorable bacteria in the gut But we do know that studies have found that the gut microbiome can affect blood sugar levels by influencing the body's ability to regulate what you mentioned, insulin. Mm -hmm. And so for the listeners, insulin is that hormone. It helps us regulate our blood sugar levels by signaling the cells to absorb the glucose from our blood. So research shows that there's certain types of bacteria that can actually promote insulin resistance and increase the risk of developing type two diabetes. And then conversely, there's other types of gut bacteria that can actually improve insulin sensitivity and help regulate blood sugar. Um, There was one study that they did, and I love fecal microbial transplant. I think it's fascinating. <laughs> um, again, mm-hmm. still so much that we don't know about what's going to come out of you know these different areas of research. But there was one study that the research found that transplanting fecal matter from a healthy individual to individuals with metabolic syndrome had improved mm-hmm. insulin sensitivity and blood sugar control just from, from changing their microbiome. So having a healthy gut is absolutely important. It's important for, you know, inflammation, immune function, and just overall metabolism.
1: You know, I always say that you're, I don't, I don't remember if I was reading it. I'm actually looking for the book. It was the third edition of the clinical nutrition support, um, dietitian book. Um, but it was saying with, uh, your immune system that your immune system actually begins in your gut. So I was like, wow, you know, just you repeating that, which I feel is important in the diabetes space because you're more susceptible to infections. So Mm -hmm. that's an important thing to to address as well.
0: Yeah. So it's estimated that about 70 to 80% of the body's immune system is in our gut, which is pretty cool. And um, it's got this huge number of different cells, um, immune cells like lymphocytes, macrophages. We call it this gut-associated lymphatic tissue. It's called the GULT. Uh Is the word for it? GALT. Yep. Uh But it's incredible. I mean, you know, our our gut is really central to immune function. So anytime that we're talking about immune function, we can't leave gut health out of that conversation.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Wow. Yeah. So why should we care about blood sugar bounds? Like, let's say that we don't even have diabetes. Let's say our like hemoglobin A1C looks pretty good. We've never really noticed trends of going up, maybe some ups and downs, maybe blood glucose has been fairly stable. What are some reasons that someone without diabetes should care about blood sugar balance?
1: Yeah, I definitely think you hit the nail on the head when you were talking about the immune system and you were talking about, you know, the good bacteria or the bad bacteria. I'm not sure if those terms are still used in the gut health space. Um, And how they can influence, you know, inflammation. Um, But I definitely think one of the main reasons is it was December of last year, the CDC came out. And they stated if things continue the way that they are continuing, that by the year 2016, um, type type 1 and type 2 diabetes together will surge approximately 700% in individuals that are 20 and younger. By the year 2060, then I was looking at something today and it says by the year 2040, heart disease is going to increase. And again, talking about the inflammation, I don't remember if it was 60 something percent. I haven't fully read the article yet. And then it talked about colon cancer and how that's going to increase in the year 2060 as well. So definitely just going back to your gut, going back to better blood sugar balance. These numbers for me are alarming. And I think blood sugar balance is important because I feel like we demonstrate to the next generation what, and I hate to use this word, but I'm going to use it, what is healthy and what may not be so nutrient dense, that's the term I'm going to use. And our food choices definitely do have an impact on our health. There have been so many people that has come to me during the shutdown that states, I have no history of diabetes in my family. I don't have any blood sugar problems yet. my A1C is 7.5. You know, what is the reason behind that? So I definitely think blood sugar balance, it, it's something that we should focus on simply because the numbers are growing so rapidly and because the root there's so many different root causes that we're still trying to figure out, well, you know what what caused the onset of this in the first place? So for me, you you can't be too careful with taking your blood sugar in your own hands and taking your health into your own hands.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I love that. And those are some pretty staggering statistics, right? that's that's something to really think about.
1: It is. It is for sure. And especially like, you know, with the blood sugars, because if your blood sugars are high and they remain high or elevated over a period of time, we have to remember that if our blood sugar is high, that means that every single blood vessel in our body, the ones that innervate the brain, the ones that innervate the heart, the ones that innervate um, the lungs, all our major organs, every single blood vessel is having a high blood sugar. So then that's impacting your overall health. You know, a lot of people don't realize that people that are diagnosed with diabetes have a two times greater risk of having a cardiovascular event, heart attacks, strokes, so forth and so on. And of course, these things, I don't say these things to scare people, but to increase their knowledge. So your blood sugar can impact your heart health, which I feel is one of the leading causes. I don't feel, I know it's actually one of the leading causes of death in the United States. So I think we need to look at everything from a holistic perspective instead of just placing things inside a box and saying, well, I have blood sugar problems, but I don't have heart issues. I don't have colon issues or cancer issues. So I think looking at it from a holistic perspective. Mm -hmm. I absolutely
0: love that. And I think even for people that are listening that are like, yeah, yeah, okay," like long term stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. I'll get there when I get there. Um, but even like mental health, right? Like I talk a lot about yeah. mental health and the connection between the gut and the brain. And, you know, I have a group coaching program and a lot of the time we talk about, um, mood and energy throughout the day and yeah. how to sustain that in order to live a more fulfilling, purposeful, healthful life. And in order to do that, balancing your blood sugar, even just on a day-to-day basis, can impact your mental well-being, your energy levels throughout the day. I've coached tons of clients who are CEOs of companies who are not managing their blood sugar and they can't focus, they can't feel energized, they are completely spent by the time they get home. And it's simply because they're not moving throughout the day or they're not eating lunch, or they're just eating pasta for lunch with no, you know, protein and vegetables. So I would love for you to give the listeners some really practical tips on just like day to day stuff that have been shown in research to support uh, better blood sugar balance that we can all do in our daily lives.
1: Yeah, so you you brought out some really great points, um, especially with, I call it hanger, you know, hunger and angry together, you know, especially when you skip meals. One thing that I would say for better blood sugar balance is don't skip meals. Don't do it. Um, eat breakfast, eat lunch, eat dinner. Um, make sure that you're having your meals. There was a research, and I actually put it out on social media, and it had an uproar. Um, That showed that individuals who actually skip breakfast have an increased risk of having or developing type 2 diabetes, again, because of that lifestyle factor. So what I would say is make sure that you are eating all three meals on a daily basis. And definitely do not hesitate to have snacks because there's some times where you have lunch and then you're not going to have dinner till 8 p.m. So you can fit a nice snack in between that time as well. So definitely don't skip meals. The second thing is, you know, what you mentioned, pairing foods. So I always like to tell people, you know, have a carb, have a protein, and have a fat. So if you're just having like a big pasta bowl, of course, that's going to cause your blood sugar level to spike. You need some protein, you need some healthy fats into the mix. So what the protein and fat actually helps to do, it doesn't, protein and fat does cause the blood sugar levels to like just a little bit, but it doesn't have like an egregious response like the carbohydrates do, but it can actually help to blunt your blood sugar spike. So make sure that all meals, you have a carb, you have a fat and you have a protein. So for individuals that have salads for lunch and you're just having a salad and that's it, that's not healthy. (laughs) I'm using that term loosely. It has nutrients, but a lot is missing. Um, And then you just end up being hangry and have your mood swings and your carb cravings later on in the day. So that is my second thing. Make sure that you are pairing your foods properly. And then the third thing that I don't think gets a lot of attention is your rest. Um, Individuals that are sleep deprived and the average American, um, average adult, pardon me, needs between seven to nine hours of sleep each and every night. Depending on your chronotype, you may need more, you may need less. But I think sleep is an unsung superhero. So sleep actually does help to balance our blood sugars. Individuals that don't sleep enough, they tend to have higher cravings. They tend to have a higher cortisol level, which can drive up our blood sugars and they tend to make poor food choices so definitely aiming to get at least 7 to 9 hours of quality sleep and i know like you know it's easier said than done but i always encourage people if you feel that your sleep is disturbed definitely get a sleep study done i remember when i was a new dietitian i was i don't know how i Got in contact with this guy at the hospital that ran all of the sleep studies, but he like hooked up people to the electrodes and he was actually even monitoring their blood sugars. And he was saying that the results that he saw, it was equivalent to someone eating a candy bar every hour on the hour simply because their sleep was disturbed. And I'm just like, say what? And he's been doing, he's retired now, retired a long time ago. But it was just like a really eye opening experience about the importance of sleep and allowing your body to rest and bringing down those hormones so that you can get not only better blood sugars, but just feel refreshed and restored in the morning to make those informed food decisions.
0: Mm -hmm. Excellent. These are really practical tips. And, you know, things that we can do every day in our lives in order to optimize blood sugar balance. And those are some things that, you know, I try to, you know, go for little walks throughout the day, especially mm-hmm. after meals. Like I'm, I have a little dog here and she helps get me outside and get my body moving so that even if I do have maybe a less balanced meal or something, you know, I'm not going to beat myself up over it. I'm just going to, you know, right. practice other lifestyle right. habits to to balance things out and And you mentioned carbs can be part of a meal, we don't need to demonize carbohydrates. And I can actually share when I, I wore continuous glucose monitor for, um, I think it was probably like two months. And it was really interesting to to just see some of the things that impacted my blood sugar. And the most striking to me was that I typically eat probably every like four hours or so and there's usually a snack in there. And there was one day that I had gone probably like six hours without eating because we were gone for church and, you know, whatever. We were doing Mm -hmm. a bunch of things. And I finally got back and I ate a really healthy, balanced meal. And my blood sugar went crazy high after like a, Mm. you know, really vegetable-heavy protein, you know, carbohydrate-balanced meal because I had gone so long without eating versus when I was on my regular schedule of eating balanced meals and snacks. And I I share that because I really wouldn't have noticed that I didn't feel anything dramatic in my body, per se. I mean, I probably felt a little tired afterwards. But that skipping of meals can make a huge difference. And to the, to the listeners, you know, a lot of these things, as Kim mentioned, they're they're not ill intentioned. You're going in thinking, oh, I'm just mm-hmm. going to have a salad and I'm going to, you know, cut down on my carbohydrates and that's going to benefit me. Um, so you're doing that in the name of air quote health. However, you yeah. know, what we know from science is now hopefully bringing up some more uh, freedom in order to balance our meals out a little bit more. So we hope that that is encouraging to the listeners.
1: Yeah. And I love the fact that she said freedom. Um, I think it was, Oh, it was earlier this year. Um, I think it was the USDA. I don't recall for certain, but it was showing that. Cause you know, like a lot of people think, you know, the Mediterranean diet is the be all tell all, which is true. The Mediterranean diet is, is a great diet. It's high in fiber. It has great diversity. It's full of antioxidants Um, you know, lean protein, but it was also showing that foods from different cultures as well can be as equally healthy. So I know like, you know, just going back to my uncle, we're Jamaican. So, you know, being told that we can't have our starches, like for instance, like boiled green bananas, high in resistant starch that can actually help with blood sugar management. So I think, you know, more research is coming out and showing that, know, just a variety, as you mentioned, and different types of foods can play a key role into helping a diversity of different people with Mm. their blood sugars.
0: And and the point that you made there about the resistant starches, I've actually done a lot of research there because nice. I also like to get people excited about these like diverse, healthy, starchy carbs. Mm-hmm. And those resistant starches have been shown in research to really improve metabolic function, reduce inflammation in the nice. colon, improve satiety. So I, I think that's another area. And I will also ask you, Uh, As a professional who works with people in the space, what is your experience with, say, plant-based diets or vegetarians who, you know, they're eating a lot of fiber, but maybe their protein is less optimal? Would you have any advice for those populations?
1: Oh, that is a very good question. Um, And the reason I think that's a very good question is because, yes, you know, they are eating a lot of fiber. They are getting a lot of plant protein, but sometimes it can be a little starch heavy. So depending on what type of plant-based diet they're on, if they're vegan or if they are lacto-ovo, I always ask them, what protein are you comfortable including in your diet? Um, So there's this one particular person that I was working with, and she was a pescatarian. Um, She was willing to eat fish, but she just hadn't eaten it because she thought, well, a vegan diet is what's going to be my, my cure. But as soon as we started incorporating a variety of fish back into her diet, that's when we started seeing a response to her blood sugars. Uh, currently now I'm working with someone who considers themselves to be a vegan. So using you know more of like soy protein and um, seitan and tempeh. now we're seeing that her blood sugar levels are responding because those things were in her diet. So something that I would say is, Um, number one, don't cut any foods out of your diet unless it's for like a religious reason or you have some type of food allergy or legitimate food sensitivity to, to it. Two, be careful of these fad diets because there's a lot of people that say, well, you have to go vegan in order to reverse your condition. But that's not necessarily true. You can enjoy the foods that you like. You don't have to be on a fad diet. Number three, always remember that protein I think protein as well, you know, we speak about it a lot. It's sexy. May I say that word? Yeah, for <laughs> so you sure is, can. It's, it's, <laughs> protein is quite sexy. Um, but definitely realizing how much carbs are attached to your protein of choosing. So if you choose lentils, great source of plant-based protein or good source of plant-based protein, I should say. But there's some carbs in it as well so just being conscientious of your overall carb intake and trying to get to a truer source of protein is important for my my plant-based listeners
0: excellent and you also mentioned cultural sensitivities right like that's a big thing to keep in mind and my approach it sounds like is very similar to yours you know if someone comes to me and their their diet or their culture foods are based on very starchy foods, we don't cut them out, right? We just try to add in other components that can balance that out because we don't want you to lose those parts of your eating habits. We don't want you to lose tradition. We don't want you to loo- you know, lose the grandma made me one of my favorite you know, family cultural dishes. We want you to enjoy your food. And so there, there's an addition typically that can be made, that can still allow yeah. you to enjoy those different yeah. items.
1: I love that you said that, In addition, you know, because a lot of the times I think people think dietitians function from the law of subtraction, like take away foods. But instead, no, it's a lot of addition. Let's mm-hmm. Let's add on. Yep,
0: yeah. absolutely. Now, last thing that I wanted to talk about is supplements. Any supplements mm-hmm. or evidence-based things out there that have been shown to be like, really exciting to you as a dietitian, where you say, gosh, this shows a lot of promise, or, you know, this supplement has really made a, a big difference in in even your practice anecdotally, but would love to hear from you on that.
1: Sure. So th- let me start off by giving just like a, a disclaimer. So definitely supplements do have the potential to cause adverse ref- um, effects. They can cause, you know, a lot of people think, well, oh, oh, it's natural. It comes from a plant. So I can just take as much of it as I want. And it's just going to do the body good. Um, But definitely just wanted to, to give that. So when I do recommend supplements, I always make sure to recommend supplements in the food form. So for instance, cinnamon, cinnamon research has shown that it may, may have a possible effect. And of course, more research is needs to be done. But when I tell people to have cinnamon, I don't tell them to do the cinnamon capsules. I instead say, Hey, can we add a dash of cinnamon or two um, on your food just to enhance the flavor? Because, you know, cinnamon can enhance the sweetness of a particular food item. Um, So I always like a food first approach. Um, There's some research that surrounds berberine um, that can help to balance your blood sugars. But then at the same time, if you're not watching the liver labs or the lab values, the ALT and AST, Those can be extremely elevated. Um, There is also um, vitamin D3, which a lot of people tend to be deficient in. So I always tell people when you go to your doctor, that's one lab test that that you need to get as well. Um, Vitamin D supplementation has not been shown to lower the risk of diabetes, but vitamin D does help with glucose metabolism. So knowing that is important as well. So what I always start off with people like, okay, let's increase our vitamin D rich foods and here are the foods. But at the same time, I need you to go to a doctor to see if you need to be on a prescription grade vitamin D. Um, So really those three things are like the main things that I focus on. And I know some people do use apple cider vinegar, Um, apple cider vinegar, the literature You know, I feel that we do need more random, double-blind, large studies, but the literature is currently showing that if you take like um, two to six tablespoons on a daily basis, that it may help to improve your glycemic response if you take it before a meal. So I always like to tell people, well, let's have a salad and let's spritz some apple cider vinegar on it just to incorporate it into their foods, because there's also pill burden that I have to be mindful of as well. So I just like people to think of it as an addition to their meals instead of it's a pill that I have to swallow.
0: Mm -hmm. And there's the the quality control concern with any sort of supplement too, right? Like how do you choose the right supplement? And are you sure that's the right kind of cinnamon or not contaminated with fillers and things like that? So using food, of course, you know, people listening will probably be like, well, food nowadays seems to not be safe either. Well, supplements are probably less safe than food, I would say, in certain right. in certain instances where you do have a little bit more knowledge of where it's coming from and, you know, a little bit more trust on the regulations surrounding it. So yeah, using your diet as a really great tool, that food first mentality, which you and I definitely have in common, which I think can be less overwhelming. A lot of people that come mm-hmm. to me have usually been to a practitioner, like a functional medicine practitioner with great intentions, but their supplement cabinet has become very full and it can be overwhelming. And we have to remember that our liver and our gut, they all have to take yes. care of those supplements. And it can be a lot, it can just be a lot to mm-hmm. to put into our system.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I 100% agree with it. I mean, I've had some people as well buy the supplements. You know, they told me same thing with you. You know, I went to a functional medicine and I have like eight separate tablets I have to take and I don't want to take them. I'm tired of swallowing pills. And that's the society that we're living in. So I'm like, you know what? One thing for sure. I don't care if you're the king of England or the president of the United States. We all have to eat. So let's incorporate this into the foods that we're eating.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. That's great. And then I know I said that that was the last thing, but um, any other lifestyle factors that you would bring in? So sleep um, resistance training is one that I, I typically talk to clients about like high level Um, as a personal Mm -hmm. trainer. A lot of the times I feel like I have to convince people to incorporate resistance training because maybe they're really used to just doing more cardiovascular based training. I work with a lot of athletes and I know that cardiovascular activity is great, but the benefits of resistance training are incredible, not just nice. in the in the moment of helping to balance blood sugar, but also long-term when you have leaner muscle on your body, yeah. it responds yeah. differently to glucose.
1: Awesome. Yeah, it makes it more metabolically active. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yes. I think another thing too is hydration. I think people underestimate, especially in like the cooler months. I mean, I'm in Florida and I'm basically sweating here, guys. Um, but hydration is a huge factor as well. And people simply, we, we underestimate, we, we don't drink enough fluids on a daily basis. And I know some people may say like the taste of water, stodgy, it's boring, but you know, try some lemon infused water, some lime infused water. If you want to get jazzy with things, sometimes I, I throw my cinnamon in there, you know, so it could leach out into the water. But I think hydration is is another key that I feel is is underestimated.
0: Mm-hmm. I have become a tea connoisseur. I've got yes. all the herbal teas, <laughs> and I'm looking at it right now over in my kitchen, and it's mm-hmm. like. I'm like, you know, I need something just different during the winter. And so I've got peppermint and hibiscus and chamomile and all these different things. And it's become a really fun way for me to prioritize hydration. So I love what you mentioned about little additions and things like that. But if anyone here is into tea, doing a little loose leaf and uh, making your own blends, you you can have more fun with it.
1: Oh, I agree. I agree. And now research too is showing that certain teas may help with blood sugar balance because simply the antioxidants that are in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just think overall teas is a great addition, especially if the times are colder or mm-hmm. if you get boring with just the taste of water. So I love the fact that you have you have your teas. That's That's encouraging. It is. It's just like I
0: got the little the little uh, glass jars and I bought them in bulk so that I could save mm-hmm. money because I'm like, I feel like I'm funding yeah. these tea <laughs> businesses for, you know, things that I could do on my own. And mm-hmm. it is, it's, it's almost like gardening, right? It's a little bit more yeah. rewarding and you feel a little bit more connected to the purpose. And it, it's forced me to learn about, as you mentioned, the many health benefits of herbs and, and spices mm-hmm. and how they can impact our gut health, our blood sugar balance, our... Um, immune function and they're not a pill so that's always a plus as well why. yeah, yeah. For sure. that's great well the most important question of today before you mm-hmm. tell us where people can find you and and learn more um, is what is your favorite childhood memory with food
1: oh okay so without a shadow of a doubt it will have to be my grandmother's cooking so um As I mentioned earlier, I'm Jamaican, but my mother and father were not too keen on like, I mean, I wouldn't say they weren't keen on cooking cultural dishes. They were just always working. So every day I had chicken and rice and some type of veggie on the side every single (laughs) day growing up. So when I would go to my grandmother's house, which was maybe like 20 minutes away, that's when I was introduced to the different herbs and spices and cultural dishes Mm. and basically everything that is my genetic identity of being someone from Jamaica. So I can't tell you which one specifically. I I guess I would have to say it was when she made me curry goat and we actually had a goat Mm -hmm. that she... (laughs) She's slaughtered herself
0: insert insert uh assumption
1: (laughs) (laughs) right and at first I was like I named him Billy I was like no I'm not eating Billy I can't do that and then I saw my family enjoying Billy and I tasted Billy and it was so good I know some people may be like goat but yeah curry goat is a Jamaican cultural dish yeah
0: that sounds like an awesome memory, and what a very important part of diversifying your diet, which seemed to be pretty sad for a little while there
1: yeah yeah, yeah, chicken and rice
0: yep i my fiance and i oh. we've been branching out to many different types of I've been to Africa, I've tasted the cuisine, I've mm-hmm. always been a very adventurous eater. Um, And I really appreciate cultural foods. And, you know, we've recently gone to some really authentic Ethiopian places and Indian places. And it just has like totally inspired me in the kitchen to start getting even more into these different spices, which you mentioned Mm -hmm. in the beginning. So I encourage the listeners to branch out and try new things. Yes, definitely. I agree. So, Kim, where can people find you? Are you taking new clients? Do you take clients virtually? All the things, please promote yourself.
1: Yeah. So, you can find me on my website, kimrosedietitian.com, or um, on Instagram, the dot blood sugar dot nutritionist. Like the dots are like the not the word, but the little symbols. Um, I am currently taking new clients, um, and really my whole entire premise, my reason for my presence on social media is to really dispel the myth that, number one, food has to taste like cardboard and sadness, and number two, that diabetes or prediabetes is a condition that takes over your life. Um, I have experienced firsthand that it is actually something that you can manage, it all takes a little tenacity and it takes a little work. Um, so i am currently taking clients if you guys are interested on working with me one on one or in my group coaching program.
0: That's awesome. Well thank you so much Kim for the work that you're doing in the field and just for an awesome conversation. It was so great to have you here.
1: Thank you so much for having me Erin. I appreciate it.
0: You're welcome. Well stay cool i guess cuz i'm i'm not in a warm place right now and very <laughs> jealous of you. <laughs> thank you all right bye-bye thanks for tuning in to today's episode if you're interested in working one-on-one with me applying it to my coaching program or purchasing my gut-friendly cookbooks you can go to nutritionrewired.com thanks again for tuning in and as always don't forget to share the health